Welcome to the Authentic Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea John. Today, we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. This Bible study is recorded live on Thursday nights with a group of people get together to dive deep into the scriptures. So in addition to mine, you'll hear some different voices. You'll hear questions and commentaries, perspectives. We don't all agree. We all bring something different to the table, but it lends itself to a conversation that goes deep and leads us further into the knowing and loving of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening because this adds to the conversation. And if you have something to add, to share, or if you have a question, you can always email me at hello at andreajohn.com. This is session seven, and today we continue our journey through John 3. We'll talk about what it means for Jesus to be the begotten Son of God, the power of choice within our salvation, and we'll even discuss what it looks like to study the Bible within context. So let's get started and find some treasure. Oh, just one more thing. Before we dive into the Bible study, I'd like to ask that you like and subscribe to this YouTube or podcast channel. This will help increase the odds that someone will find this life-giving content. Don't forget to share it with your family and friends. Let's get started. Okay, so last week we were uh, going through John 3, and we kind of stopped around verse, kind of funny that we stopped around verse uh, 16, like 16 to 18. Um, so I wanted to, to start there. Obviously, John 3, 16 is like, you know, that oh so famous and popular verse that everyone um, is very familiar with. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it from the new English translation. It's slightly different. So it's different enough where I feel like it almost causes you to stop and think because sometimes like I know that verse by memory, it was one of the first Bible verses that I memorized when I was a kid. And when you memorize a verse, it almost becomes like white noise. It does, you don't stop and think. So I'm going to read it from the NET. And it says, for this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And I just want to kind of close the thought and then we'll dive in and discuss. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in, in the name of the one and only son of God. And then it's going to go into um, what judgment looks like. And we'll talk about that um, when we get there. One of the things that I found interesting when I was diving into John 3, 16 is um, like this one says he gave his one and only son. Uh, New American Standard says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
who else's translation says begotten? Does yours, Dad? Nope. Yours doesn't. Okay, see, now it does. So one of the things that I had um, learned is that in the original, um, that term begotten is kind of, we, there are some translators that use that word and a lot of people have memorized it because I even think it's in the King James, if I'm not mistaken, but begotten gives like a connotation to there being a metaphysical relationship and God, Jesus was not God's actual son in that way. So what I was reading is that the word that's used there in the Greek, it's kind of like saying it's a unique or a, a um, what was the, a, like a one of a kind. So when we look at that is Jesus is a unique child of God. And I thought that was interesting because we are all children of God, right? When you accept Jesus and you come into the family of God, you're a child of God, but Jesus is one of a kind he's different he's a child of god in a different way than we are um so i thought that was an interesting perspective i don't know what um what you guys have on that and then i saw that there was an um someone had used an example of um abraham and isaac that term is used in with them as well and we know that isaac is not the only son of abraham but he was a unique he was a one of a kind son he was the one that had the promise of god to attach to him yeah because in the jewish concept the only son he is saying like the messenger jesus was the messenger and the messenger has to be kind of exactly the same image as the sender hmm. that's kind of the connection on the, in the Jewish concept, concept. Yeah, I don't know where I read. I had read too, like that term. I don't remember if it was in Hebrew or Greek, but that term was used like if it was your only son, you know, someone only had one child and that's the kind of the term that they would use. I like what you said, dad, that was interesting too. And think about it. How many sons did God have? We, we can say we are his sons too, but how many sons did god have like jesus zero uh, sorry, right one one well like <laughs> him, jesus yes. nobody it is else. jesus yeah so it's unique like the word you use it, it is unique right yeah. so i had always thought and the reason i bring that up i guess is because growing up with that word begotten i had always thought you know Mary's the mother and God's the father and the Holy Spirit came in and that's the begotten, you know, begotten part, but it, that's not the intention behind it. And it could make a difference. Doesn't, um, does a little bit to me because it's kind of, I don't know. It does to me when I learn things like that, it just helps me understand spiritual things a little bit better. Can I say something about this, the one and only son? There's a word picture and it happens oh. to be on my study Bible says something like this. Uh, in Hebrew, okay, Isaac is called Abraham's, and there's a word 
Mm-hmm. Isaac, Isaac was not Abraham's only son, but he was his one of a kind son, right? Like we are all God's sons and daughters, but Jesus is one of a kind. That's the meaning of the, of the word. That's the focus. Yeah. Unique. Again, it gives us a word in Greek and it's unique. I, I'm, I'm saying it in English, but it, that's unicus. I'm, I don't know if that's how they spell it, but in Portuguese it would be unico. Yeah. They are unicus. Yeah. Unique. It's unique and it is unique. We cannot compare ourselves to Jesus. Yeah, there's always going to be a distinction between us being a child of God and him being a child of God. It's it's like not on the mm-hmm. same same plane. Yeah, it's not on the same level, yes. The next one for me is kind of fun because I've been diving into this concept of judgment um, and, and judging and things like that um, since, I don't know, the summer or fall. So it says, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And then it goes on to say, the one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Um, instead of condemn, does anyone's translation say judge? No, ESV says condemn. Mm-hmm. See, NASB is, NASB is lowering in my list of translations. Why? The NASB? NASB says judge. Oh, it does say judge? It does and the say NRS, judge. The NRSV that, Donna, <laughs> yeah. is it, you, you like the NRSV, right? Um, mine, yes. And mine says condemn, but I do have an, um, this one here and it, it says judge. It's the NLT. NLT, yeah. NLT says judge too. I go to NLT a lot for readability, but that one's going down on my list. <laughs> I'm like, now that I'm learning, I'm just like, oh, okay. But it's good. Um, so the reason that the word condemned there, and now that I understand when you know who God is, and this is why it's important to read the scriptures, even if you don't do the deep dive like we're doing here and you kind of go, you know, on the surface level in the beginning, depending on your walk with God, knowing who God is, is so important, knowing his nature, even when you're reading the Bible and attempting to interpret the Bible or reading through it, because it, it, helps you pause and stop and say, wait, this doesn't seem to align with the nature of God. You know, it's not about, and this is where we have to caution because it's not about saying, oh, I don't like what it's saying about God, right? Because some people do that. I don't like what it's saying. Therefore it must be wrong. And then they go on a witch hunt to go find why that verse doesn't mean what that verse is saying. That's not what I'm talking about. But for example, this one with condemned, I grew up with knowing the word judged there. And in our Western world, when we think of judge, we think of a courtroom, you know, a person with a robe, they're determining who's guilty, who's innocent. And really, it's not so much determining who's innocent. Really, when we think about it, we're thinking about they're there to determine who's guilty and then to assign punishment. That's the Western world. 
Now, the Eastern world, depending where you go, can be a little bit like that now. But back in the day, when you look at even the book of Judges or what judge a judge would do or what judgment is, it was always focused on how to make things right, making something right, bringing justice to a situation. It wasn't about bringing punishment to those who did wrong. It was about making things right for those who were wronged. So, and, and it, it's kind of a little bit of a twist, but it makes such a huge difference in our thought process when we look at something fr from a perspective of, wow, this, and let's just use an example of a person who's been wrong. This person has been wronged and I want to make it right for them. I, I want to make it whole for them, complete, versus this person's been wronged. I, we need to go punish the guilty. We need to go punish the person who's been wronged because punishing the, per, uh, the person who did wrong, because punishing the person who did wrong doesn't always result in the person who was wronged being restored in bringing wholeness into the situation. Sometimes, you know, restoration or wholeness for that person who was wronged looks a little different from punishing the person. It could result in it, but it, it doesn't always result in that. So when you think of God as judge, you know, and you think of it as everything that God does, all his judgments, who he is as judge, when he looks at justice, it's always about bringing things into wholeness, completeness, bringing things into the order of which he created, his divine order, everything he does, is for that purpose, then we realize in, in my kid, in, for me anyway, I look and say, okay, as a child of God, someone who's supposed to look like God, be like God, bear his image. It's my responsibility to judge like him mm -hmm. and not just to go punish those people who did wrong. So what's, that's why for me, what's interesting here is now knowing what I know about God in that regards, it made such a huge difference that one word condemned from judge because what it's saying here is to me you know you could switch the word condemn to punish like he's saying god did not send the son into the world to punish the world to condemn the world to say it's guilty he came so that the world would be saved and again what is that that's him making it right him making it whole, him making it complete, him bringing restoration to his design. So I thought that whole concept was neat. Does anyone have anything they want to add around that? Well, there's like seven, eight versions that use the, uh, the word judge, mm -hmm. like the uh, Nasby uses. And again, this word, if you go on Strong's Concordance, uh, it could be judged, it could be condemned, it could be, it could be called in question, it could be called punished, it could be said sentenced to. So yep. that's just a word they all mean about the same. About, the same, about yeah. the same. And I think it also depends on what type of, like how you're defining the word, right? So the other day I was listening to a podcast and they had brought up the word judgment and they're like, 
you know, a lot of times people use the word judgment as in deciphering, you know, um, right and wrong, like which way to go in terms of I'm making a judgment call, that type of thing. And I was like, that's not how I think of me personally. That's not how I think of the word judgment. To me, the word judgment has a negative connotation. It doesn't mean that's right. It just means like for some reason, I'm conditioned to have a negative view of that word judge and judgment for whatever reason, right or wrong. So I have to recognize that I have a filter with that word and I see it negative, but it doesn't always mean that it's negative. Uh, but again, God is a righteous judge. Mm -hmm. What does a judge do? Well, he's, he's making judgment. things right. Judgment. So it's not a bad word. Right. It's not a, you know, it should not make you feel, oh, this is a bad word, you know. Right. No, it's not a bad word. It's Sounds not, bad, exactly. Exactly. It's not and, a bad it's, word. and it's one of those things where I'm coming from the perspective of I have this preconceived notion about the word because it tends to be as like we associate it with a courtroom and a judge saying someone's guilty and being punished. So then when I look at God, it doesn't translate well, but there's different ways to look at the word. So that's important too. Well, somebody's being judged in a bad way, but somebody's being judged in the right way. One will be set free, the other one in the courtroom, and the other one will be locked up, let's say, or put right. to death. So it's still a but judgment, it's a beautiful it, it, word. It is a judgment, but in our, for example, in our court, in American courtroom, the judge is not looking, the judge, the ultimate intention of the judge, I've sat in courtrooms way too many times in my life. The intention of the judge, unfortunately, is not necessarily to restore or make it right for the person who was wronged or is the, the um, plaintiff or whatever. They're looking at, we need to determine if this person is guilty or not. Not what's the right way to make it whole. Like our laws are set in a way that it doesn't, if my case is unique and I need a unique situation to make it right for me, the judge doesn't care. There's laws and things in place that they follow to determine if the person is guilty or not. And then what that punishment is. If, you know, like there's been times where people are in death row on the death penalty and the, the, the plaintiff vouches for the, the, the defendant and says, I don't want them to go to death. Like that's not going to that's not gonna make it good for me. Like, I'm not gonna feel better because that person's dying. It's not gonna bring the person back. It's not gonna give me my, whatever they did, you know, it doesn't make, so it's, the, the way I see it is God is always looking at, let's say I've been wronged. He's looking at what, how can I bring forth wholeness in whatever Andrea lost in this situation? He's not looking at, this person wronged Andrea and I'm going to punish them for it. Now it could result in the punishment in a punishment, depending on what it is, because there's consequences, 
but the focus is on the restoration. Hopefully, right? There's always a restoration on both sides, but that's why sometimes consequences come into play. So that's why like for me, and I'm just talking it through because I know people who have thought, thought that way too. And when you think of God as a judge in that way, it, it makes him more harsh. And then everyone's always afraid of like, I just did something wrong and God's waiting to throw the gavel down and tell me how long my sentence is going to be because I'm guilty. And here he's saying, I didn't come into the world to condemn it. I came to save it. I came to restore it. I came to make it whole. You know, to me, I look at that as Jesus came to undo the curse of the fall. And this is him saying, that's what I've come to do. Obviously, the world is guilty. <laughs> you know, obviously, sin is overtaken. Evil is overtaken. But the, I've not come here to condemn everyone. I've just come to save it. Another thing that stood out to me was the world. And I don't know if this stood out to anybody else, but if you think about the time before, Je you know, during Jesus, before Jesus, it was always about Israel. It was about his people and his people were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting to be saved. And Jesus is saying, I'm not, like, in essence, right? I'm not just here for you, Israel. I'm here for the whole world. I came to restore the whole world. I came to save the whole world. So for them at that time, that would have been interesting that Jesus is saying, I came for the world, not just, not just for you as a people. Well, he kind of said the same thing many years before that to Abraham. When he, he said, he promised him when he made a covenant, he said, I not only will prosper you, but it says, the verse says, all the families of the earth. So it's not just for the Jewish people. It's not a new concept. Yeah, and that's important too. When you read through, especially Abraham, the story of, all of the story of Abraham, you, you see that too, is that God's intention was always to have the whole world to himself, to have the people to himself. He wanted everyone to be his children and to be part of the descendants of Abraham. There wasn't, there was no distinction with God, you know, but then there was a people, you know, things happened and there was a people and it was through the people that God was trying and I don't know if we got into this last week. I think Mike was going to talk on it because he can talk on it a lot more than me. But through the people of Israel, God was making his name his name known, right? There, he was talking to them, moving through them. And as they they walked around, and there were victories in his name and all this stuff. But um Israel was always focused on them, you know, kind of on themselves. They were a mixed people group because even when they left Egypt, some of them cohabitated. Like when they left Egypt, Egyptians came with them. So it wasn't just Israel. Egyptians came with them. There was like, you know, there was a mixture going on. It's not like God said, hey, you're not my people. You can't go with them. You don't belong. God always wanted all people to himself. And through Jesus, he was able to do this. This is 
when you read a lot of Paul's writings and he talks about this, you know, especially in Romans, it's about how God's heart was for all people. You know, there's no distinction between male, female, you know, race or anything like that. It was his heart is that everyone be his his child and part of his family. And, and Abraham even wrote a song about that, God promising that all families will be blessed. You know, you know the song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. <laughs> That's where they got that song from. Yeah. That's it's not about just, again, this nation is unique. Israel is unique too, but it's not yes. only nation. You see now, people, nations, they're unique nations, unique people, a unique son, but there's more than that to the story. You know, that's interesting that you say that because now that just connected the dots for me because in one of the, I, I, I don't know if it was the, yeah, it was in the story of Nicodemus. Um, I heard someone teach on this whole concept of begotten. And now I understand it's unique. That's what it was that the people that the people of Israel were called that as well, that they were God's begotten that they were God's unique people it was that same word that same concept so a lot of times when we read like um we're going to read it in in a bit but when we see when we see Jesus talking about himself in this way um there are times where you can look at it and say this is an invitation for us to be like him you know as a child of God so, for example, God uh, sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. That, no, we're not called to save anybody, <laughs> but that anyone who believes is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already. Let me, I'll, I'll turn back to that, that point in a minute when we get to the whole light thing. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to point out here, and in John, you're going to see this a lot. There's a huge concept of the power of choice. You choose. It's not, and that's where the judgment comes in. And he, and, and he says, for now, in my translation says, now this is the basis for judging that the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. And just before that, we see that the one who doesn't believe they're condemned already. And if you believe you're not condemned, that's why I like the word condemned over judged, especially in that portion. To say that, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion based on my study, is that to say that I as a Christian won't be judged, I have a hard time swallowing that. Now, to say that I won't be condemned, I can understand that. So when we look at the verse, verse 18, the one who believes in him is not condemned. So some translations have judged there. Um, I do believe that we will, we will be judged and that we are judged all the time. Um, but then it says, 
The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So the choice, it's our choice. Jesus came into the world, not con to condemn it, but to save it. But if you don't believe in him, you're already condemned because the salvation is through Jesus. Sin will condemn you. Evil condemns you. That's that's the enemy's doing. So that's why the word condemned to me means so much more in this passage in terms of, of context and really looking at what it's saying. Because to use the word judge to me is, it's not really portraying, in my opinion, it's not portraying the, the message. So on your free time, if you want to read it and almost use the different words. And what I'll do in the show notes is I'll add the concordance, the Strong's concordance definition that has all the words and the synonyms, and then almost replace it and see and make the judgment for yourselves. Because just because I'm saying it, I don't want you guys to, to be like, oh, this is the way it is. Go in and look for yourselves. And then based on your relationship with God and other things, you know, of the scriptures, you know, you can kind of make the determination of, what is this really saying? What is this really telling us? But the power of choice here is evident that we choose. Are we going to be condemned or are we not going to be condemned? And that really depends on our choice of are we going to follow him and be his disciple or not? Anything added? So I appreciate you highlighting a lot the intention or the difference between the denotation of judgment then compared to now and the connotation of it and how we use it, it seems like you're laying to bear two sides of the same term coin. So the only other time I can think of the word judge in the New Testament, I'm using a, a Greek text. It's in Luke 18 and krites is the word that's used for judge. It's the same term used in John 3 all throughout. Uh, krine, krisiste, krise. So the same term is used whether we translate it judge or condemn. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, is there a time in John where it's clearly a positive adjective for the word judge, which would be a test case if that's the right word. And it is in John 7, 24. So there, I mean, the phrase that literally says like, don't judge according to what seems, but just you, it doesn't even say with or to do, it just says just the judgment judge. And it uses the same word Christian or Crinite. So you're right, that word all comes down to the context of what it's used, but in our minds, thousands of years removed, we tend to look at it in a way that's more pejorative, but that's a, a good thing to be keen about in the text. It's the same Greek term used throughout, just like we would use a world of difference between a smart man and a smart aleck or a smart guy, like equivalent terms, but the connotation and denotation couldn't be further apart. I appreciate you highlighting that. Same Greek term though, all throughout, it's just forms of crinine. Yeah. And that's what's tough is when we look, read scripture, the, the originals, right, Hebrew and Greek, Greek is, is in a homonymic language, but at the time there were idioms and sayings and some, there weren't as many words as there are today, even in the, especially in the Hebrew language. So it's almost like we have words today that mean different things. It's the same word. So understanding context, culture, you know, different idioms is so important and we lose it. You know, it's think about you know, even language in the 500 years ago was different. Like think about King James, like it's changed from then to now, how much more the English language has changed from then to now, how much more so a different language 
2,000, 3,000 years ago. And on top of it, one that had so fewer words than we have today, right? Very, it's a very poetic language. So it's important. Another great example of what Mario, what you're saying, and even this homonymic situation comes with um, the whole concept of light. So I, I went and I went like down this rabbit trail of the word light because I knew that I had heard something about the word light and I couldn't remember what it was. I know that revelation has something to do with it, but I was like, what was it? Cause I don't like to just like talk. Oh, well, you know, I like to go and look. So when I went to go and investigate in the Hebrew, the old Hebrew. Okay. So all the way back then, even from the time of Genesis, that word light obviously can mean illumination, right? Like a light that brings light into a situation. Um, but it can also mean order over chaos. So I was listening to different teachings from different people who were taking this concept and even applying it to Genesis 1, right? So we go to Genesis 1, and in, it talks about in the beginning that the earth was without shape, and it was empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep, but the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. God said, let there be light, which in when you look at that right off the bat, you say, oh yeah, the world was kind of in a chaos and God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good. So they used that and said, oh, he brought order into chaos. That's, that's great. Mm -hmm. But then in the next verse, it says, so, so God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning marking the first day. So, so to me, it's, can it mean order over chaos in this case? Yeah, it can. Like I'm one of those people, like I always say, I'm more of an and person than or, but if you read this in context, right, it's clearly talking about a separation between daytime and nighttime. Now, if you, if you really go and look further, a few days later is when God actually makes the sun, the moon, the stars. Mm -hmm. So the night and the day came into it. It's hard to even imagine the night and the day came into existence before the sun and the moon and the stars. So I can see it, but there's still a separation of day and night. And then when you look at, um, I, I read someone say this and I thought it was brilliant. When you think about the times of Jesus, they didn't have necessarily the Old Testament like we do, right? Like they can reference. It was a lot of oral tradition. They memorized things. They had Torah and all that stuff. But to them, everything they were talking about, everything they were saying, you know, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, their concept was the text. So the words that John is using right, or that Matthew's using, or that Mark is using, is always referring back to the text. It's referring back to the scriptures, because that's the language that they spoke. 
if they're if they have sayings, if they're quoting something, they're going back. So when I went and I looked at all of the different places that used that word light in the Old Testament, everywhere, okay, even Proverbs, it always refers to like an illumination for the most part, not an order over chaos. So the order over chaos, I can get my mind around, around and I think it's pretty cool to know that. But then when I looked in context and I'm looking at, okay, how would these people have interpreted the word light? I don't think based on my finding that they would have viewed it as order over chaos. I think they would have seen it as illumination. What do you think? What does chaos really mean? I'm asking now. What's chaos? Out of when order. When God created the world, the world was in a chaos. Why? Why was it in a chaos? There our was no order. Our presidency is in a chaos. <laughs> Just because it's darkness, darkness, darkness is not a sign of chaos. Correct. Well, right now it's chaos here in Jersey. So what would, how would you define chaos then? I don't know, because when we think, when I think about chaos, again, I could be wrong because I'm wrong many times. I think something really bad, I mean, a mess. Broken. Destructive. Would that be a good way? Like broken? Yeah, whatever. Because so God go ahead, go ahead now. The phrase in Genesis 1-2 is tohu babohu. And it's a phrase that modern Israeli grandmothers are used if their grandson has a room that's just a complete hot mess. It just means like disarray. So I think in context, the term is because it's primordial to verse three when order becomes. So the author seems to be setting up a pre-stage on, on which God can display his grandeur and creative capacity. Something primordial perhaps before, I mean, ex nihilo or not, who knows, nobody was there. But the question of it being before order means it was what? not order yeah the thing i hadn't thought about till now is so john one makes reference to genesis one in the beginning the word was mm. same author at the end of revelation chapter 20 verse 5 he makes mention of a time where light is beyond the illuminaries of the sun and moon i wonder if his authorial intent is undoing just like acts 2 undoes genesis 11 just in the beginning of genesis there was light before the illuminaries at the end of Revelation, same thing. There's light after the illuminaries. So I wonder if he's referencing back the same bookends. It ends as it started. Oh, it's like Genesis one to, John 1 to Genesis 1, Revelation 22 to Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's good. See, I love stuff like that because we have to realize a lot of what John talks about, there is a, he's talking about the Old Testament. There's a lot of allusions to Moses and you know, a lot of Exodus talk that goes on. So it's when we read John, we can read it on the surface. So for someone who's new to Christianity, it's definitely a great book to read and just read it on the surface for what it's saying. But when you go back and you look at the context and you really understand culture, history, literature, the literature type, like to me, for example, Genesis one is not it's not literal to me. There's a poetry happening. So not everyone would agree, but understanding those different things help us dive deep and really understand because here it becomes very clear that a choice needs to be made. 
If you don't make the choice to go to Jesus, you are already condemned. It's not that you will be condemned. It's you already are there. You're already there. So to make the step over, you have to walk through Jesus. You have to, Jesus is the way to get there. And that's really the whole point of the book of John. John wants to bring witness to who Jesus is. So that everybody would know that he's the Messiah. Um, the other point I wanted to make is this uh, when I was talking about. Not I'm going to use the word begotten, but the, the uniqueness is that in this case, right, Jesus is the light of the world. And then in first John, we see that we should be, um, you know, God is the father of lights and we should be children of light and we should be like a light in Matthew. We should be like a light on, you know, on top of a, of a hill. And it's in these cases where it's an invitation, you know, Jesus is the son of God. He's a unique son of God. Israel was also a light to the world and they were a unique child of God. And it's an invitation for us as children of God to say, you know, God called Israel for X, Y, Z and God called Jesus for X, Y, Z. It's an invitation for me to be X, Y, Z as well. So, so in this passage, one of the beautiful things is to see what is God telling us about himself? He's telling us that he is someone who has come to save the world, that he loves the world, that he took this unique son that he had, this one of a kind. He created this one of a kind son to come into the world as a human being to save us and to be the light of the world so that we could be saved. And like him, we should be the light. And then he says, um, but the one who practices truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. And that ends our session for today. If you've been blessed by this Bible study, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with others. It's an honor that you've chosen to join us in this conversation. We'd love to know what you think, how this has blessed you, or even if you have any questions by sending an email to hello at andreajohn.com. To prepare for next week, continue reading John 3. Dive deep really dig deep to find beautiful treasures of God. Here are two questions that you can ask along the journey. One, what is this telling me about God? Two, what is God telling me about me? That'll allow you to join the conversation with your own study, perspective, opinions, and questions. And if we don't answer the question that you may have, you're always welcome to email us. Or if you have a perspective that we didn't cover, we'd love to hear about it. Because who knows, maybe I'll share it in one of the sessions. So thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, have a blessed day.